For anything I say today as a servant of the gospel to make sense, you must submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Any moral and ethical decision-making process that we make as individuals will surely fail under pressure if we simply rely on our own virtue and strength. I rarely lose sleep. Um, I usually go to bed, lay down, and I'm out. Um, This week, as I was doing some research for this sermon and probably got myself on some lists looking at some of these hate websites, uh, it's a disturbing uh, thing. Uh, some of the attitudes and ideologies that we can see in our world being ban- bannered around um, by uh, all types of folks. But while I lost a little bit of sleep today, you shouldn't lose any. Uh, uh, you shouldn't have a problem because I tried to really hard to avoid politics and other ideological frameworks uh, because I think. Hate really is a theological issue. Um, It really boils down to the fact that the reason why I say and claim that hate is not a Christian virtue has nothing to do with my political persuasion or my national origin, my immigration status, my race, uh, my gender, or any other um, factions that I might claim to be a part of. I make this claim solely because Jesus of Jesus Christ, who has come to break down all walls that divide his people and make us into one. So, as we begin today, I'd like us to think a little bit about uh, some thoughts about why we often hate. I hate, to hate seems almost natural uh, sometimes. Throughout history, there have been people who have done horrendous things to individuals and groups of people that seem quite deserving of our hatred. We may even argue that because God hates what is evil, God hates these people too. Even for the most devout person of faith, when tragedy strikes close to home or strikes the innocent, we are tempted to hate the perpetrator. This feeling is quite understandable. But luckily, it is also often temporary, and eventually healing comes and hate subsides. At the individual level, many of us are surprised at the capacity for forgiveness that we can muster up, especially when we lean on God for our healing. At other times, hate is directed at groups of people for all types of reasons, race, gender, sexual orientation, national origin, immigration status, and income level, just to name a few. Group hate is facilitated by a couple of mechanisms. It is obviously easier to hate a faceless or unknown enemy than it is to hate someone who you are in a close relationship with. Our culture has also sought ways to help us separate our feelings of animosity and hate from the actual mechanisms by which which hate often manifests itself in acts of violence and war. Specialization allows the common person to say things like, we just supply the weapons. We don't decide how they actually get used against our enemies. Or as M. Scott Peck points out in his book, People of the Lie, whenever the roles of individuals within a group become specialized, it becomes both possible and easy for the individual to pass 
the moral buck to some other part of the group. In this way, not only does the individual forsake their conscience, but the conscience of the group as a whole can become so fragmented and diluted as to be non-existent. Behavioral researcher Patrick Wannis cites the in-group, out-group theory as a source of hate. This theory posits that when we feel threatened by perceived outsiders, we instinctively turn toward our in-group, those with whom we identify as a perceived survival mechanism. Wannis explains hatred is driven by two key emotions, love and aggression. First, love for the in-group, the group that is favored, and two, aggression toward the out-group, the group, the group that has been deemed as being different, dangerous, or a threat to the in-group. At the group level, hate often becomes more acceptable for us and more palatable. And this ends, or this tends to lead us to the most common source of our hate, which is fear of the other. I'm often amazed at how gripped by fear we seem to be today. Um, that was part of the thing that was so out, just amazing to me as I was looking through some of these websites. I'm just like, how are you so fearful and of threats that are of no threat at all? It just, it just seemed to be just dizzying how fearful we are. Almost every news story or comment from our political leaders today is laced with fear. However, fear is nothing new, and it has always been a problem even for people of faith. But God does not want us to be fearful of others. Instead, he calls us to love our neighbors and even our enemies. Fear not is an expression that is found in the Bible over 300 times. Jesus frequently said, fear not. But on one occasion, Jesus urges fear upon his disciples. He says in Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Instead, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. How often, though, when we pray, even here on Sunday mornings, do we seek healing of bodily ills but never pray for help with the sad state of our souls? But if they have, if we've even been paying attention in the slightest bit, it is clear that hate has been on the rise and people who claim the name Christian are not immune. In light of Jesus' statement in Matthew 10, 28, I'd say that when Scripture urges us to fear God, it means that we ought to fear displeasing God more than we fear others. Will Willimon points out in his book, Fear of the Other, the key to courage is not the banishment of all fear, but fear of the right things in the right way. Our problem in regard to fear is that we fear and often when then come to hate the other more than we fear the God who commands us to love one another. A major Christian claim is that Jesus gives us the operative grace that teaches our heart to fear, disappointing God and also the grace that enables our irrational harm-producing fears to be relieved. Fear is a natural human protective mechanism, and yet part of the joy of being a Christian is to have a whole host of otherwise innate inclinations mastered by the love of Jesus Christ. 
at its best, the church teaches us to be afraid of our propensity to be fearful, to resist our innate tendencies to regard others as enemies deserving of our hatred rather than sisters and brothers in Christ. At its best, the church teaches us to refuse vainly to attempt to secure our lives and our own security through the world's means rather through God, than through God's means, the way of Jesus Christ. If we are indeed Christ's disciples, then it's our responsibility in a culture of fear and fear mongers to show the world the joy of living by faith rather than fear. To show the world the joy of love rather than hate. A Christian is called to be a showcase of what Jesus can do that the world and individuals striving on their own simply cannot. In our gospel reading for today, Jesus begins with the phrase, you have heard that it was said, followed by the phrase, but I say to you. These phrases are critical to our Christian understanding. Here, Jesus is indeed making a break from Jewish tradition. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the law and reinterprets it in the light of his coming into the world in grace and truth as the Savior of the world. As God has spoken in the Old Testament, here and now I will do a new thing. Here and now Jesus does just that. Right before our passage for today, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 38 to 42, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take you take your court, excuse me, take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. This is indeed a change to the retribution-based system that could be seen to have offered space for hatred upon our enemies. This new approach also, though, forces the evildoer to face their victim, to see the one um, before them in, the, in flesh and blood and not just as a nameless, faceless enemy, which is much easier to hate. Then Jesus goes on in verses 43 to 45 that Jerry read, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus commands us to love and not hate even our enemies. Well, deep at the core of hate resistance is forgiveness. Chances are if you are filled with hate, you also are filled with unforgiveness. At those who have been saved by as those who have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ, we must readily offer the same grace to others. Jesus modeled this type of deep forgiveness when he was crucified and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Archbishop Desmond Tutu reminds us, if we look only to retributive justice, then we could just as well close up shop. Forgiveness is not some nebulous thing. It is practical politics. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Or as Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power of love. 
there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. We must turn from hate and enmity to love and forgiveness of others because we have first received love and forgiveness through God, through the power of Jesus Christ. And we must also remember what Paul shares in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These systems and powers often direct us and influence us towards these feelings of hatred. What Jesus Christ's coming that we celebrated on Christmas and whose power to conquer sin and even bring life out of death, we celebrated Easter, is that he has given us a new vision for what it means to be children of God. Those of us who follow Christ, those of us who have accepted his abundant grace, must now respond to this gift by offering God's good gifts of love and peace and justice and mercy to others. But for love to be, um, for it to be real, for it to be seen, we must make it as visible as the fear and animosity that often leads to hate based on race and national origin, sexual orientation, immigration status, political affiliation, economic status, and gender. A couple years ago, I went um, to South Africa, and we had a really wonderful morning where we got to go and spend several hours with the Reverend Dr. Peter Story who was a white South African pastor who fought against the system of apartheid in South Africa that racially divided that nation for nearly 50 years. He reminded us that people cannot imagine what they cannot see. Too often I think we succumb to the darkness of hate as a default because we have not done a good enough job shining forth Christ's light and love. If we are to convince the world that hate is not a Christian virtue, then we must make the alternative of love more visibly known. When people accuse us of being hateful as Christians, there's usually evidence for it. They don't usually just say that randomly. Usually it's because someone who claims the name Christian has done something that's hate worthy. And that's why we must reject hate, but we also must be a witness to the light and the love of Jesus Christ. I want to share you, with you a few words from Peter's story, from uh, my experience with him, that relate specifically to the hatred of racism displayed in South Africa during apartheid. But I hope you'll see its broader application, not only to the issue of racism in our own country, but, all, but to all that we are tempted to hate. Peter's story shared that the giants of history are those who have put high principle not only into words, but action. 
They lived as visible examples, signs of what they cherished for all people. It wasn't just about them, it was about all people. In a world of cynicism where the ugly and selfish dimensions of human nature are too often uppermost, there is something surprising and beautiful about a living example of the difference. Racism is a disease of the heart. It is rooted in the fear that casts out love. It cannot be divorced from our selfishness and pride. That is why we cannot be Christ's peacemakers in this land unless our inward spirits begin to match our outward ideals. People must be able to look at how we live and say, perhaps it is possible for people to repent of their divisions, to come together and work and pray and struggle together and to live a common life. Christ's peacemakers then become signs of hope. So the Jesus that we preach is a Jesus who breaks the walls, who has destroyed the middle wall of partition, who has brought together black and white and brown, making them one in his single body on the cross. The evangelism we preach is Christ and his burning passion for the world. We lift the cross not as a way of escape, but as the place where at his invitation we are nailed to his passion and where he nails us to our neighbor. That is the evangelism I speak of. That imagery there that we are nailed to our neighbor. We can't be separated. We can't be torn apart because in Christ we are made one. And now the story. <laughs> he talked about um, as they were beginning to see hints that apartheid was crumbling that they recognize what he said, that you have to make it visible. People have to see it to believe it, that an alternative is possible, that hate can go away, that we, that we can be united. And so he said, we realized we needed to start integrating our churches wherever in, in any way we could. It was illegal. Whites and blacks had to worship separately. But so they, his church decided that they were going to start an underground restaurant in the basement of the church. It was a multiracial restaurant, and they served 200 meals a day. And he said it was something to see a black person being served by a white waitress, something that we had not witnessed in over 50 years. It was an amazing witness, just seeing people coming together. And he said, you know, people would come from businesses and they would come in and they would interact. And he just said he just was amazed by it every day. Then he said, <laughs> an evangelical man uh, once asked, how many conversions have you had? And he responded, where are your eyes, man? The presence of people here together as one is a conversion. This whole restaurant is a conversion. Where are your eyes? 
Christ breaks down all that divides us and heals all of our wounds. H. Richard Niebuhr defined conversion as a new way of seeing. To those who were blinded by hate, the light of Christ has come. We once were blind, but now we can see.